Welcome to the PM&R Scholars Podcast. The following is a recording from one of our virtual didactic sessions. We were joined by Dr. Jim Eubanks, resident physician from UPMC, to discuss prehabilitation and spine surgery. Hope you enjoy. And I'm a resident at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I also have a background uh, in sports science as well as chiropractic, um, as you can see here. And I'm going to be discussing the topic of prehabilitation and spine surgery. So this work is part of um, a formal training program that I'm in through the Association of Academic Physiatrists. And uh, it is supported in part through the University of Pittsburgh School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences. All right, so the outline for tonight, what is prehabilitation or prehab? We're going to discuss the definition and history. We're going to look at the current state of spine care. We're gonna ask the question, why prehab for spine surgery? And uh, look at uh, some of the evidence um, for prehab. And we're also going to discuss some of the initial considerations with implementation. And in particular, prehab and lumbar spinal stenosis surgery. So what is prehabilitation? We're mostly familiar with the concept of rehab, which means really to rehabit or to return to activities or habits after injury or surgery. So we can think of prehab as really assisting patients in their preparation for return to activities before they actually have an injury or surgery in this case. So prehabilitation is really a multimodal conception based on three fundamental concepts. One is improving the patient's physical condition. Another is optimizing their uh, nutrition or metabolism, physiology, as well as their cognitive uh, capacity. So we want to focus on things like reducing stress and anxiety or some of the psychosocial factors that are important to many of us as clinicians. We also care about things that are ancillary to these considerations like smoking cessation and correction of issues like anemia, which is something that um, is done really in the perioperative space um, and does often involve anesthesia these days as well. The aim of prehabilitation is to really optimize the patient from the moment of diagnosis until the intervention, in this case surgery, to reduce post-operative complications. As in the case of multimodal rehabilitation protocols, the actions of our prehab efforts are really synergistic. And that's something we wanna keep in mind. So small changes that by themselves may not um, have much clinical significance added up actually may have um, important clinical significance that alter outcome. And that's the name of the game here. So defining prehab in the context of surgery is a treatment approach designed to prepare patients for their surgical procedure with the goal of enhancing their intrinsic ability to buffer against surgery-related declines in function and well-being and improve patient satisfaction by aligning expectations with actual patient capabilities and anticipated outcomes. So it's important to recognize right off the bat that surgery is traumatic and burdensome. So we can look back as far as 1953, and Francis Moore described actually in detail in this particular article um, about the sequence of trauma experienced by the average uh, surgical patient. And as physiatrists in my case, but as clinicians in general, we, we frequently will see the hardware of our, on our diagnostic imaging, um, but less frequently, particularly as non-surgeons, those of us, uh, are we considering the actual surgical procedure and process that patients undergo? So it's important for patient validation to really uh, consider the trauma that they experience. Surgical trauma is often referred to as a neglected stepchild in global health in terms of patient numbers, mortality, morbidity, and costs. A study published in 2015 found that up to 4% of patients will die before leaving the hospital, and up to 15% will have serious post-operative morbidity. 
and five to 15% will be readmitted within 30 days. So these percentages equate to around 1,000 deaths and 4,000 major complications every hour. That's been estimated um, to be roughly 50% uh, preventable. And really the surgery volume is large and growing by the year. So we can see that globally, there's over 312 million major surgeries. And again, we discussed the number of deaths and major complications and that many of these may be preventable. So when we think about prehab, we wanna think about this concept of weathering the storm and that's Jim Cantori, uh, actually with Hurricane Earl in Cape Hatteras, North Carolina which was a category three hurricane where he's standing back in 2010. So we want a sense of direction as we do this. So we look at the history here and prehabilitation is really first mentioned in the literature around 1946. Um, and it's in the context of the military in this case. We see it again, start to emerge in 1985 and then it evolves into the current um, era with the examples like the Copenhagen adduction exercise, which was shown to be quite effective at reducing groin injuries. So strength and conditioning generally, and with some specific exercises, we have been able to show there is a reduction in injury risk. Um, on the other hand, common approaches that are often taught as preventive of injuries and pain, like stretching, for example, have not been shown to reduce injuries in high quality trials, and in fact, have been suggested to uh, increase the risk of injury in certain populations. So we can look at the prehabilitation in critical care. Um, this was in 2002 uh, from the Medical College of Georgia, where we find that the musculoskeletal and cardiovascular systems were recognized at this point to be really central in achieving and maintaining functional independence, which was a prerequisite for healthcare facility discharge and uh, seen as an independent um, uh, consideration of a person returning back to the community setting. So, Whereas a decrease in physical activity will often result in the attenuation and functioning of the cardiovascular and musculoskeletal systems, increases in physical activity might stimulate their gains of functional capacity. And this was uh, beginning to be observed and focused on in the literature. And so it was hypothesized at this point that by increasing an individual's functional capacity through increased physical activity prior to an ICU admission, we may be able to retain a higher level of functional capacity over the ICU admission. All right, so moving to prehab and spine. This is from 1985. And again, this is in the context of uh, injury prevention. Uh, so we can consider really three things here. That is primary prevention, secondary, and tertiary. So with primary prevention, we actually do have some good evidence uh, that uh, from actually an article in the BJSM or the British Journal of Sports Medicine in 2017, which looked at 36 prospective cohort studies with a meta-analysis and included over 158,000 participants. Um, and it did find that involvement in sport or other leisure physical activity was associated with an important reduced risk of frequent or chronic low back pain. Uh, in moderately or highly active individuals um, compared to inactive persons. There's another study that's notable from 2018 in the American Journal of Epidemiology that found that exercise alone, as well as exercise combined with education, could reduce the risk of low back pain by up to 30%. And importantly, the severity and disability associated with low back pain was lower when compared to inactive controls. Um, and so these studies primarily examined a combination of strengthening and aerobic exercise performed at least two to three times a week, which is significant here. With secondary prevention, uh, there was a systematic review and meta-analysis in the Journal um, of uh, JAMA Internal Medicine in 2016, which looked at the available evidence and found that exercise alone, or again, in combination with education, was effective in preventing low back pain compared to inactive persons. 
All right, so what about orthopedic surgery specifically? So here we have prehabilitation in preparation of orthopedic surgery, which first enters the literature in around 2002. And we find that they observed by increasing an individual's functional capacity through physical activity before an anticipated procedure, in this case, let's think about elective orthopedic procedures, it seems reasonable, and again, this is hypothesizing, that they may be able to maintain a higher level functional ability and rebound more rapidly in the rehabilitation process. But one thing I would point you to is how recent all of this thought process emerged in our system. Okay, so what about the current state of spine care? So the Lancet in 2018 raised really unprecedented awareness of the rising global burden of low back pain and the role of poor quality or low value um, healthcare and its perpetuation. This was an effort by 31 authors from 12 different countries who really outlined an up-to-date and evidence-based synthesis to describe current recommendations and the mismatch in clinical practice. So despite more clinicians and treatment options than ever, the data suggests that the burden of spine-related disorders continues to grow. And this is significant and part of the reason that I am so um, excited about the prospect of a prehabilitation strategy uh, when it comes to elective spine procedures. So if we look at a resource we have here in the US from the United States Bone and Joint Initiative, um, which is the uh, BEMIS or the Burden of Musculoskeletal Disorders uh, in the United States, we find some interesting facts. So low back pains estimated, as you've probably often heard, to be about 80% of adults uh, at some point during their lives who will experience this. 2015, uh, World Health Organization data established that it is the number one cause of disability. It has fluctuated at times with depression, but it's important to note that spine-related disorders and neck-related disorders um, are often in the top five uh, for the past 15 years or so. They are now the number three most costly health condition in the United States. In a given year, 12 to 14 percent of percent of American adults will visit a physician due to back pain. And with the aging US population, these disorders are becoming a greater burden on our communities. All right, so across all adult age categories, musculoskeletal conditions are either the most reported or second most reported. These occur across all ethnicities and backgrounds. Notably, low back pain related um, to the spine is reported by up to 25% of those less than 44 years old and a third of those greater than 45. All right, so we really have a perfect storm. When inappropriate spine care meets an aging population, we risk uncontrolled costs and unnecessary patient risks unless current trends are reversed. So between 96 and 2014 here in this graph, the cost of musculoskeletal disorders um, represented an increased share of the GDP in the United States from 3.4% roughly in 96 to 5.7 in 2014 with a continuing upward trend. This exceeds defense spending. That's pretty phenomenal. Um, in all of these categories, direct costs, indirect costs, and share of the GDP, the economic impact on musculoskeletal disorders continues to rise. So roughly one in three adults experience some degree of persistent low back pain. Around $315 billion is lost in annual wages in the US. In 2015, 264 million workdays were lost from spine-related disorders, and this is nearly two lost workdays for every full-time employee in the U.S. This matters because 72% of low back pain medical visits are by those in their prime working age. In terms of the economic cost, annual hospital costs are around 156 billion, as you can see here. 
annual lost work days due to spine-related pain amounted to 264 million days in total, and the lost total earnings was around $4.6 billion. This data is really staggering. Despite the money being spent, outcomes are not improving, and that's really the key here. When hospitalization is necessary for spine-related disorders, charges, charges are also on average higher than for other types of conditions. And an estimated 10.9 million persons in the US experience limitations in their daily activities due to these spine-related disorders. So are there brighter days ahead? We do have an opportunity to address the problem of spine care by implementing novel spine care strategies that prioritize the return to function, not the elimination of pain. We've tried that strategy. It has not worked out well for us. So prehab uses high value care in a timely way to optimize outcomes for appropriately selected patients. So let's ask the question, why prehab for spine surgery? And what does the evidence tell us? So I recently have been involved in a um, uh, scoping review project and we ended up screening over 6,000 studies in the literature through October, 2020. And we have some of the highlights. I do want to use an image here by uh, Greg Lehman, who's a, a physical therapist and chiropractor that um, has some excellent uh, uh, illustrations for what we're going to be discussing. But in general, research suggests there's a need to combine prehab approaches for patients undergoing elective surgeries that focus on modifying pain, catastrophizing, and fear avoidance using things like patient education, cognitive behavioral therapy, physical exercise, and the enhancement of self-efficacy and motivation using things like motivational interviewing and goal setting. So as you can tell already, this is going to be heavily lifestyle oriented. Prehab prior to spine surgery for patients with lumbar spinal stenosis surgery, spinal stenosis for example, should focus on both physical and psychological considerations uh, to impact these post-surgical outcomes, as we'll end up discussing. So looking at modifiable factors to explain patient dissatisfaction after spine surgery, um, there was a study done here that uh, looked at patient satisfaction and found that this is closely related to achieving clinical improvement in pain and disability after surgery. So we have the, the uh, understanding that there are modifiable factors at play when it comes to the outcomes with surgery. We wanna keep that in mind as we move forward. So pre-op factors are actually quite predictive of outcome. And in fact, this study here uh, by Jeff Hebert, who is a DC PhD, found that these might be more predictive of outcome than surgery-related factors. Okay, this was a longitudinal analysis of prospective data. He found that those with uh, demographic health and clinical factors were more predictive of clinical outcome than surgery-related factors themselves. Okay. So how about pre-op care and education? So in this study, it was found um, that there's a clear need for standardization in the preoperative care and education. This did involve uh, one of my mentors, Mike Schneider, who's here at the University of Pittsburgh, and they found four major themes in this particular work that uh, we've incorporated into the uh, pilot study we're doing at Pittsburgh um, using prehab in lumbar spinal stenosis surgery. These four themes included the desire for helpful educational information, the benefits of preoperative rehabilitation, that is patients sought this type of information, patients wanted to better understand the downfalls of preoperative rehabilitation, and they also had a specific desire for coordinated care, which is often lacking in our current system. All right. This study is looking at engagement and patient satisfaction and involves another um, uh, co-investigator in our work, and that's Richard Skolaski, who's the director of the Spine Outcomes Research uh, Center at the, at the Johns Hopkins University. 
and they found that patients who are more engaged in their healthcare prior to elective spine surgery are significantly more likely to be satisfied with their post-op outcome. Okay, and how about maximizing physiologic and psychologic status prior to spine surgery? So this has been looked at as well. And the conclusion in this particular study, which was from this year, uh, found that by maximizing a patient's physiological and psychological status prior to surgery, we may be able to achieve the goals of value-based care, improving patient-reported outcomes, and decreasing cost. So this is particularly important to health plans and insurers who are looking at ways to find more efficient delivery of healthcare. Inefficient in this case means uh, high value in the sense of cost versus outcome, okay? All right, a couple more here. So prehab and degenerative spine surgery. So studies suggest that prehabilitation improves post-op outcomes, shorten hospital stay, and may reduce costs, okay? And this is, this is a significant thing, um, again, for the uh, insurers and the health system itself. Looking specifically at prehab for spine surgery, this is starting to emerge in the literature. And it's um, something that another uh, co-investigator in our work, Rob Smeets in the Netherlands is looking at, which I'll be discussing a little later. But this particular study uh, by Nielsen and others found that integrating um, prehabilitation and early rehab improved outcome and shortened hospital stay and without more complications, pain, or dissatisfaction. These are really significant. From the surgeon's perspective, patient satisfaction is crucial right now. And one of the reasons is that patient satisfaction is really used as a metric for how surgeons are evaluated. And so at the moment, at least in our current environment, they care an awful lot about patient satisfaction just as much as outcomes. There was another study here by Nielsen and others that uh, found similar conclusions. Okay, so we have to understand some of the core concepts involved with prehabilitation strategies. And one of them is this concept of fear avoidance, which was really introduced by Litham and uh, really expanded upon by Vlayan and others, um, where they looked at a vicious cycle between pain catastrophizing um, and the connection between fear, activity avoidance, decreased physical activity, depressed mood, and persistent pain. Fear avoidant beliefs really have been related to more severe pain, um, as well as disability before surgery and poor outcomes at least up to one year following surgery. Pre-op cognitive behavioral therapy can lead in some cases to decreased fear avoidance. So that's something we'll be discussing a little bit as well. And if delivered before surgery may lead to greater reductions in disability um, at three and six months, um, according to the available literature at this time. It may also improve quality of life up to one year. All right, so now looking at CBT a little bit further, this is a typical diagram that explains the theoretical relationship. Preoperative cognitive behavioral therapy uh, ideally leads to decreased fear avoidant beliefs by helping patients better understand the connection between their beliefs, their thoughts, um, the feelings, as well as their behaviors that result. Okay, another essential strategy to at least be aware of here is, is called motivational interviewing. The ORS mnemonic is something that uh, we often will see. It involves using strategies to help patients understand further um, where they are in the change process. So it, it may involve open-ended questions affirmations, reflective listening, and summarizing. And in doing this, we really develop more uh, significant um, clinician-patient rapport. 
which is essential to long-term relationships. Research does demonstrate that realistic beliefs about recovery and high self-efficacy are related to better surgical outcomes and specifically in patients undergoing lumbar spine surgery. So pre-op motivational interviewing and goal setting may improve self-efficacy and lead to greater reductions in post-op pain as well as disability. Some studies have established that it's possible to train healthcare providers in motivational interviewing to an acceptable level of proficiency. Uh, and in one randomized trial of MI, training methods for health professionals, a workshop with uh, practice feedback did lead to greater gains in proficiency compared to self-training or ongoing maintenance activity that included feedback alone. All right, there's a concept called pain neuroscience education, which we can simply call patient education um, that particularly in this case involves pain. And there is some evidence that pain education such as PE can have positive effects on pain, disability, catastrophizing, and actual physical performance in those with chronic musculoskeletal pain. Provided in the preoperative stage before orthopedic surgery, PE has been shown to be associated with decreased length of hospital stay, as well as reduced pain medication use. Some randomized trials using prehab exercise or preoperative PE have shown some improvement as well in post-op outcomes and decreased healthcare utilization as a whole, including medical testing. The benefits of this uh, may include improved self-efficacy and fewer complications due to better patient awareness. So now we move on to physical activity and graded exposure. This is a um, good illustration of what that looks like. We are taking a patient where they are currently and we are taking realistic steps to get them to their end goal. This is another image by Greg Lehman that I really like for this purpose. And in the context of this graded exposure, many patients with lumbar spinal stenosis, for example, report low self-efficacy and decreased motivation to engage in or confidence to perform many types of physical activities. This can be, of course, devastating for patients in the post-op period if they're unable to return to their ADLs due to inconsistent beliefs about the safety to do so. So if this is a strategy we can use with patients, particularly those who may not have a robust training background or framework for understanding how they can rehabilitate themselves. All right, so who are the high-risk patients? These are older patients. These are patients with comorbidities. These are patients who are considered frail, right? Crucially though, these risk factors are highly modifiable, which is the premise of prehab. So if we look at um, the older population, this is really interesting to me. There's a great uh, series of studies, not just this one, called the Liftmore trials. And it took um, mostly women who were um, osteopenic or osteoporotic and put them through a high intensity resistance and training program to see how they would respond. And not only did they tolerate this well, but they were able to improve their bone density in the process. All right, so I'm a training as a physiatrist now, so I consider what is the role of physiatry and prehab. Really, in medicine, we tend to overemphasize caution when it comes to function. Our care plans and words have help or harm potential. As the experts in function, as rehab professionals in general, we must own our responsibility along the continuum of care. There's a great example that um, I would like to point out, Lamar Gant, um, who had uh, severe scoliosis and was nonetheless the first person in recorded history to deadlift five times his own body weight back in 1985. And I'll show some uh, images of him here shortly, but he had idiopathic scoliosis of 80 degrees that would increase to 100 degrees during competitive deadlifts. So that's pretty impressive. Most of the time, I think that if someone walked into 
um, a spine expert's office with a scoliosis of 80 degrees, you know, they would be quite panicked, right? Because that needs immediate correction. But in this case, we found that um, sometimes people are able to adapt and robustly able to do so. So physicians and other healthcare professionals suffer from specific biases that directly and significantly influence our interactions with patients. And this is really due to anchoring and availability bias, which is we tend to rely heavily on our more recent experiences as representative of the common experience. There's a double-edged sword to this. While we underplay some patient concerns like the risk of procedures, we tend to overemphasize others like the risk of spinal flexion or posture and its role in spine pain. So most people though are capable of overcoming and adapting and we want to work intentionally to overcome our own biases as healthcare professionals. And this is especially true with spine related disorders due to its ubiquity and due to the effect it has on disability. So here are a couple of images of Lamar Gant just for your own knowledge. And this was something that uh, Peter O'Sullivan's group did, looking at the available literature on this question of flexion uh, being harmful to the spine. And uh, they essentially found low quality evidence that greater lumbar spine flexion during lifting was not a risk factor for low back pain or persistence. That's important because what we find is that there's not a lot of literature telling us that flexion is dangerous, but nonetheless, that's what we often are telling people. And so we probably should not be doing that. Words matter. The iatrogenic potential of a clinician's words is something we must be cognizant of, particularly in our prehab efforts. So this was an interesting study that came out in May looking at the power of words with pre-exercise information and this concept of hypoalgesia um, that is exercise-induced. And it found that negative pre-exercise information and these are persons without chronic pain, but nonetheless, this may negate the hypoalgesic effects of exercise that we would otherwise expect to be occurring. This is a pretty good schematic that I like showing how exercise um, has a relationship to our lifestyle. Uh, you can feel free to screenshot that um, and look up that reference. So what about exercise and back pain in general? Research shows us now that pain often has little to do with the mechanics of the spine, even though that's what we often tell patients, right? But with the way the nervous system behaves, we find more understanding in why we might be experiencing pain. So Jim Rainville has been working in Boston for quite some time looking at this question of exercise-based therapies for chronic low back pain. And he said that there's a change in the way the sensory nervous system processes information. Normal sensations to touch, sensations produced by movements, they're translated as noxious for some people. And this process drives us uh, in a way that um, causes us to become disinhibited, right? So our goal as clinicians is to reignite uh, the person so that they are comfortable doing the things that they like to do and understand that even though they may feel discomfort, that that is not in and of itself a reason to become disabled. It's, it's a tough balance and there are many factors involved with this, but it's nonetheless something we as a community in healthcare need to be much more um, aware of. All right, so what's the best exercise for prehab? The one that the patient will do, first and foremost. So key questions, what kinds of activities do patients enjoy? What is realistic for them given their schedule and values? 
and how might specific physical activities promote functional goals? This is uh, another schematic that uh, I find very interesting and useful. And it's looking at exercise therapy in persons with pain. And it emphasizes that we might want to think about this in terms of time contingency, feedback, self-regulation and self-monitoring, individualized and enjoyable activities that relate to the patient's goals. We may include an understanding of pain biology. We want to continually reassure the patients. We want to develop and restore movement confidence. And moving along, this is a busy schematic, um, again, by Peter O'Sullivan and others, but uh, it's one that you might want to take a closer look at because it does a nice job of combining the different um, biological, psychological, and so sociological factors um, that are probably involved in the experience of spine pain. All right, so now we ask the question, how do we implement this? So here is the um, uh, team that involves Rob Smeets that I was mentioning. Rob Smeets is in the Netherlands. This is uh, a team that's looking at um, a randomized control trial that involves really five sessions um, in one arm of prehab and a second group of persons that receive preoperative information, undergo surgery, and then receive conventional care. But the intervention group receives four sessions prior to surgery of prehabilitation, which does involve physical activity and exercise primarily. They undergo surgery and then they receive one additional fifth session prior to their conventional post-op care. This is currently underway and uh, they'll be looking at the effects of the intervention at three weeks, eight weeks, three, six, 12, 24, and 60 months postoperatively. So we're gonna get a lot of time points to try to understand where we see changes and how we might mitigate um, any kinds of outcomes that are less than ideal once a patient is on this uh, pathway towards and after surgery. This is a more detailed breakdown of the sessions, the five sessions involved in the PREPARE trial. If you're interested in prehabilitation, I would highly recommend that you look at this work that's underway. Um, they've really kind of set the bar for randomized uh, trials looking at prehabilitation and spine surgery. And again, this is outside of the US. So in the US, we are starting to become more aware of this. So at UPMC, where I am here in Pittsburgh, we already have required prehabilitation for our total hip and total knee replacement um, patients. So anyone who's undergoing those surgical procedures um, is actually bundled in such a way that they receive prehab. This has not yet happened as a mandatory uh, component um, of spine surgery, and that's where we're going next. So it's been very successful in the uh, total joint space. And because of that success, it's now being um, investigated in other areas, including spine. So what does this do really? It incorporates uh, healthcare screenings like um, trying to lower health risk prior to surgery that includes health, um, smoking cessation, blood sugar control if you're diabetic, uh, and weight management. So we have specialists that are involved that will help patients target those goals. Um, there's preoperative education to address what is to be expected. That includes patient home videos as well as um, booklets. There's also a preoperative class where they go to as a group with other patients who are undergoing a similar surgery and they learn more in detail about how they should get back to living their normal lives once they have the surgery. There's also a preoperative uh, prep checklist for things that the patient needs to be aware of, like home preparation. Um, and that includes uh, pretty mundane things like um, bringing personal items for the surgery itself, um, what kinds of exercises they can begin doing at home, 
or rapid return to ADLs and what types of medications would be okay for them during the process. So really based on this model, we have received the support to explore the concept within the spine surgery space uh, and are doing so. This happens to be with orthopedic spine surgeons, but it can certainly be done with neurosurgeons as well. Um, and we're doing it at UPMC St. Margaret, which is one of our uh, hospitals here with two surgeons, uh, Vince Silvaggio and Patrick Smith, who are both spine surgeons. We're using a PSP or primary spine practitioner trained PT named Kelly Yoder Jones. Um, I'm gonna describe a little bit about what that PSP program is and its relevance here. Um, and then we have the support of Michael Schneider who is uh, one of my research mentors, Chris Standard, who's also, uh, he's a physiatrist, but he's also running another program here called the Program for Spine Health, which basically tries to take persons um, with higher psychosocial risks who are experiencing spine pain and mitigate some of those um, outcomes that are often associated with that population. And uh, then we also have a pain psychologist involved named Carol Greco who's a really stellar um, clinician. This is an example of our uh, booklet that we are using with the patients. And just to give you an example of the, the um, table of contents there. Okay, so also we have a pre-op um, educational video that we have uh, developed to give to patients. And these are some of the screenshots from that video. So the, the PSP program is important because it is essentially a way of standardizing certain basic um, spine care principles. And so Kelly uh, Yoder-Jones, who's the PT working with us, for example, completed this. It's 120 hours of instruction. It's, it is multidisciplinary. It involves uh, chiropractic, physical therapy, physiatry and um, pain psychology. And there are different units across several weekends where you take someone who's either a physical therapist or a chiropractor and has already been out in practice, but you're trying to really fine tune their understanding of the application of good spine principles. And um, we found that this is a, a really useful tool for the purposes here in Pittsburgh. So what are the phases of our program? So the patient meets with a spine surgeon. They're determined in advance to be a candidate for the prehab um, because they are a candidate for lumbar spinal stenosis surgery in our case. So we're looking specifically at lumbar spinal stenosis. The patient undergoes prehab evaluation and education. We want to, during this time, try to identify symptoms, functional limitations, and administer some initial outcome measures, uh, as well as devise individualized programs and education about surgery and its course, some pain neuroscience education if it's appropriate for the person, and identify their specific goals. And then we undergo targeted pre-op therapy and again, this is a PSB trained PT, delivers ideally three pre-op therapy sessions uh, along with a physiatrist who's working to identify patient needs and barriers. And then we will evaluate outcomes uh, as, as they're happening. Okay, so what do we care about in terms of outcomes? This is a combination of things that we might care about uh, both as non-operative clinicians but includes what the surgeons care about. And one big one is time to ambulation after surgery because that does predict return to ADLs. Okay, we also care about length of hospital stay. That's a, a good surrogate for return to ADLs, but also overall costs to the health system. Opioid use. So the biggest uh, predictor of ongoing opioid use is opioid use prior to surgery. So that is something that we can address through prehab. Patient satisfaction, it's um, commonly thought that a, a theme that patients identify when asked uh, about their experience with surgery is that they do not feel they have good continuity of care before surgery, during, and after. And so that is something we also address through prehab. 
Of course, we want to return to their baseline level of ADLs and hopefully beyond that. And then we're looking at their adherence to the prehab program itself. Um, ultimately, this is a question of feasibility. Can we take this model and extrapolate for other locations, other institutions, other health systems around the country, not just ours? Uh, Pittsburgh's a little bit unique because we have uh, an integrated healthcare system. So we've got an insurer that is um, a partner, a direct partner with the health system here. And so there's an incentive for the health system to save money in ways that um, individual hospital systems may not have. We're also looking at qualitative data through focus groups and individual interviews to better understand some of the um, opportunities and barriers as well as facilitators of the experience that patients have when they undergo prehab. So we're summarizing now, prehab is about empowerment and resilience. An optimal prehab program with spine surgery in mind may enhance behavioral and lifestyle changes intended to promote spine health. It may reinforce um, patient adherence to ensure optimal delivery of high value spine care. And it may support the interdisciplinary care team to work more effectively across the system and improve short and long-term outcomes by positively affecting modifiable patient and clinical variables. So what's next? Um, we're involved in an active pilot study right now here in Pittsburgh. There's also now an International Prehabilitation Society. Um, there is also a, a new effort through the American College of Surgeons called Strong for Surgery that is directly um, uh, enlisting the uh, rationale of prehabilitation. All right, I do have references for those who would request them. And I want to thank you for your time and now open up to any questions that you might have. Can I make a statement, Dr. Eubanks? Yes. Okay. Um, my name is Hefti Dean. I'm, I'm a first year medical student at um, Michigan State University's osteopathic medicine. So like, yeah. if I'm getting this right, does this, is it seem like, it seems like prehab is kind of like, like pretend if I'm going to play basketball and I do like a dynamic warm up so I don't get injured. It's kind of like that for surgery purposes. If yes, I'm understanding it correctly. Yeah, absolutely. So, so surgery, surgery is trauma, right? Yeah. Even if we need it, even if it saves our life, everything, right? So mm -hmm. physiologically, we're trying to optimize patients, but we're, but, but the, Expansion is in addition to the uh, physical training element that people who do sports or have a sports background implicitly understand. There's also a psychological side to it, right? Yeah, it's like the mind-body connection. Yeah, exactly. So, so psychologically, there is um, a need to understand how to cope with that experience, how to uh, understand it in such a way that they get back to their life because you know a lot of the surgeries that we're talking about here um, involve major changes to, to that patient and, and, and uh, a recovery process that is fairly prolonged, right? Like this is not the removal of a lipoma where you right. go home you know, and you're done. This is, so prehab is particularly important to total joint replacements. Um, as well as transplants, which is a huge one right now. Like that's where it actually took off initially was in abdominal surgery and transplant surgery. And the reason is that literally those patients often may not even survive if they were not preconditioned beforehand, right? Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So okay. now we're just, we're, we're, we're taking this, this logic a little bit further and we're saying, well, Spine is a particular problem that, that we really have as a health system. We're not doing well with it, right? Yeah. There's an awful lot of disability to it, even though it doesn't kill people, right? Like it disables people badly. And uh, spine surgery, unfortunately, is often associated with prolonged disability as well. It doesn't seem to get people back to work in, in as many cases as it should 
based on you know the relative um, uh, numbers and and data that we have right about the yeah. actual physics problem. So what we're trying to do is say, can we improve on all of this? You know, get people back to their life, get people back to work, doing the things they want to do by giving them better information, conditioning them a bit further, and uh, and equipping them. You know, so that they can do it. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so it's like, and like, if you're not, if you, if you understand what your fear is, like, you know how to cope with your fear, like that kind of ideology behind it, where like, if you're not going in dark, you know what it's going to take to like, get through this mentally. uh, You can get through it as long as it's not like a slap in the face. Exactly. And the thing is, you know, when you talk to people about this, they're like, oh, yeah, that makes great sense, right? Like, this is not rocket science here. This is taking yeah. basic principles that we all use in our lives and we're just applying it to a very vulnerable population because it makes a whole lot of sense to do so. And um, I think one, one obstacle we've had is that it's been hard to get insurers to pay for something that saves money down the road, right? Yeah. Like that's just not how our our economic system thinks. No, yeah, <laughs> really frustrating, you know. Yeah, they're very but short term. The thing is, so uniquely so in in this particular case at Pittsburgh, because our uh, health system is also the owner of the hospital system, right? They're the same entity. Um, we've got a big proportion of our patient population that has UPMC health insurance. So okay. what does that mean? That means that all of a sudden the health insurer cares a lot more about where that hospital money is going. Yeah, right? exactly, because they want to save it, yeah. That's how they make money, right? And, and yeah. they actually make a little more money than the hospital system does, mm-hmm. right? So then they're highly incentivized to work out new solutions and say, well, okay, how do we save money, improve outcomes, and keep people healthier in the long run, right? And um, that's the ultimate question we're trying to answer, though, is how do you how do you take that and make it work much broader, right? In other yeah. systems, in other institutions. Yeah. That's that's kind of what got me into like um, physiatry, because like yeah. our our OMT classes that we're like learning about, and I have like a big sports background, so I was just like very much into it, and then like I didn't know like these things existed, like I didn't know PMNR was like a thing until. I started school and it yeah. kind of just became where I was like, man, like everything that this like encompasses is what I've believed in or like done when I was going through, like if I'm rehabbing a knee injury or anything like that, where it's like, if I better understand something or if I, if I'm putting that foot forward and I know what's going on, then, then I can deal with it better versus me just being in the dark the whole time and not being able to do it. Absolutely. But, yeah. But I think that's that's kind of what like gravitated me towards this. I'm I'm still a first year, so like I'm not I don't know much about anything. But um, when when I come to these kinds of lectures and I'm learning from people like you who are very like well into this and you have a great handle on what's going on, and I just see more and more like I feel like as we get through our program, it's kind of like we forget those basics like how you just mentioned. Like yeah, it's just basic ideology that we're applying, and I feel like it's really important to apply that because at the end of the day, like our patient doesn't have our training, so they'll better understand something basic and, and it works. So it's not like you're telling them something that just doesn't work. You're just trying to save a buck. It's like, no, this is, this is science. Like this actually works. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, you know, it's really important to realize that, that uh, like all the physicians out in practice totally get that lifestyle first. If we could get people to change their lifestyle, like everything would be better. Right. Mm-hmm. The problem is our our system of incentives is is so challenged when it comes to making that happen and actualizing it, right? And we don't have the time, we don't have the tools, we don't have the resources to really throw at these patients what they need to make a lot of that happen. Now, there are a few model programs where that is happening, so it's not like it's not occurring and there's a lot of change taking place there there are new models emerging one is the program for spine health 
here, which is led by Chris Standard, that uh, you know, I absolutely believe wholeheartedly is going to change things for this system and hopefully others, um, mm -hmm. and other systems are working out similar uh, efforts. So it's not just here by any means. And I wanna make that you know, clear as well. This is something that we all have to be working on, right? Um, so yeah, excellent, excellent thoughts there. You know, I appreciate you, you asking your question. There's a couple other questions on the chat here. I'll just take a stab at here. Uh, Dino, all right, so what's typically more efficacious, a regimented prehab program or just general recommendation for good old health and fitness? Um, it seems that some of our literature, general fitness and exercise works, whereas, um, or as well as regimented programs, does this hold up in prehab world as well? So that's a great question. And I think this is really important when you consider uh, specific patients, right? Like if, if you have a training background, if you're highly motivated, that's, that's a different pathway than the patient who doesn't have a training background, um, who, who isn't motivated or has trouble really um, with, with some of these uh, basic um, self-management tasks that they have, right? So I do think that some people would do well with just general recommendations, and we, we wanna try to identify those who do, and then others are gonna need a little bit more encouragement, um, support, and uh, properly identifying those two different groups is, is probably really important. We are, so that's one thing we're, gonna, we're trying to look at. So our program, we, we basically got some funding um, to cover co-pays. So it's being offered across, across the board. Anyone who signed up for surgery related lumbar spinal stenosis can enter our program. And at the end, after they go through surgery, part of the uh, work that we're doing is one-on-one uh, -on -one interviews and we're trying to understand their thought process, what worked for them, what didn't, what was too much and what was not enough, right? So I don't think we know really well yet in the context of prehab at least, the difference. You know, I do think there probably are different people that need different amounts of help, right? Naturally, um, just like athletes. I mean, this is, you know, that's why I love sports medicine because it's so like clean, right? It's easy to see the patterns and then we can apply them to more complex situations um, like this. So, you know, that's a great question. And I think we'll find out eventually how it works out for prehab. It'd be but interesting it, to note that Jim for, uh, you know, both cost analysis um, and then, you know, obviously the, the other ones, the, the, the outcome uh, for that. Um, but I think you're right, um, you know, in separating the, the motivated people that have kind of a training background out from the ones that don't. It just be, it would be nice to track that just from a cost analysis standpoint too. Yeah, and yeah, and the, there's other there's other ways of thinking through it too. Like Jim Rainville and Rob Smeets actually worked on a paper together where they looked at um, patterns among people with spine pain, and they kind of identified three gestalts. They they said that there are some people who are um, misinformed, like they just need good information because they heard bad advice, right? Then there are some people who had a bad experience, like they, they were bending over and felt the pop and the pain, and they need help getting over that, that memory, essentially, right? And then there are people who have um, more complex psychosocial overlay, right? Where, where you know, I had a patient in, in clinic recently who had, you know, pain exacerbation, but in the background, there was just this absolute catastrophe in the personal life taking place, right? And, and that was really what everything was um, uh, sort of uh, obstructed by. So I, I do think that there are dominant issues and patterns that we could probably address to more efficiently uh, move people forward, right? Like they can't be reduced down to that one group. And, and I really think that that's something that's unfortunately been lost in this whole conversation about like subgrouping or not, right? Like it's, that's not the issue. The issue is 
are there major obstacles that we can identify to help people overcome, right, in order to make progress? And that's different than, than reducing people down to like a specific label, right? Like that's just trying to, to move with the moment and figure out what's happening right now that we can address and help them overcome it. Uh, okay. Thanks, Doc. Appreciate it. Yeah. All right. What does a spine care dream team look like? What's your opinion of the efforts use like utilizing a multidisciplinary model? Um, spine care dream team probably is something similar to what uh, Chris Standard is doing. To be honest, I have tremendous amount of respect for him. So he, he's he his big thing is he wants to stop calling everything pain. He wants to start focusing on spine health. That's his word. He loves that concept. Like he thinks it should be about spine health, right? Like we need to spin it differently. We need to look at the obstacles differently. And um, so, you know, his team involves rehabilitation specialists on the therapy side, um, physicians as needed, pain psychologists, uh, nursing, of course, is involved in this. I do think that this is an interdisciplinary effort, ultimately, because one of the things that, um, you know, you appreciate more than ever, particularly in medical school, just because, again, medical students are trained, first and foremost, to be generalists, and then you do residency and specialize. But in becoming a generalist, you have to know, you know, this much about everything, right? And the knowledge base in medicine is huge now. It's just too big for anyone to tackle alone. That's, that's the take home point here, is that this is not about a single type of expert anymore. This is about a team working together, uh, using their strengths to ultimately help the patient move into the right direction and improve their outcomes. As rehabilitation folks, I think we're really on the right track with focusing first and foremost on function above and beyond, you know, this question of pain even, because we've learned that pain may not need to change much in order for us to nonetheless dramatically improve function. And that's really important here. Oh, yeah. We can't change pain very much. Thanks, Jim. Not safely. <laughs> yeah. You can, but not safely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, why were three visits chosen? So that was entirely pragmatic, Alex. And that was based on the estimates that the surgeons could give us from the moment that they decided um, when a patient was appropriate for surgery and when that patient would be scheduled, we needed enough notice, right, to work with the patient. And really for us, anything beyond three visits was going to be too much of a burden on the, the physical therapist, Kelly, as well as um, not give the patient enough time before their surgery. So I can tell you, it was entirely pragmatic. It's not like we had some great formula uh, to figure that out. Not, however, because our model is fairly lean, if we do see positive movement on the outcome side, I think that's really a good thing because we will show that you don't need 12 visits, right, to move the needle on this stuff. Um, so the leaner it is, the better. We can always realize that we need more time but if we start relatively um, you know, short and efficient and we find good outcomes or changes, then that's going to be ultimately a net win, right? All right. Thanks, I appreciate it, Jim. Yeah. I just, uh, could I follow up on that? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, is the, is the idea there more to change uh, how they how they're framing pain, or is the idea to kind of change them from a physiological standpoint to get them ready to sur for surgery, or is it you know is it both? It's a little bit of both. 
but when you have fewer, when you have less time, it's certainly more about the psychological side of it, right? Because we can't, it's not like we're going to put someone through a, um, you know, periodization program and, uh, you know, prepare them for surgery with, with 12, weeks, 12 weeks of preparation or anything. We, we just don't have time for that. So um, we do have a physical component. So Kelly, right off the bat, works with the patient, tries to identify like right now preoperatively what are their functional barriers. And then we build into their post-op goals, um, functional um, in, you know, targets based on where they are at that first visit. So there's that longitudinal tracking that is goal-oriented. Um, however, it's not like we're going to be, you know, they're not going to be doing 30 sets of um, push-ups, you know, every day for 12 weeks and like building up, you know, their, their um, strength in that sense. Um, there, you know, Rob Smeets, they have a little bit more time on it, but, you know, it's, it's still, it's a very good hybrid between balancing the education for the patient as well as the um, exercise-based component. But one of the, I mean, if you think about it, so to break it down, what are we trying to do? We're trying to give them accurate information. Um, we're trying to, to um, demystify the surgery because that's often a problem for these patients is that they have wrong ideas about what they're going to experience. A big one is that post-operatively, they assume in many cases they will be pain-free. That's not the case. Surgery freaking hurts no matter where it happens, right? Because sur spine surgery cuts through a lot of tissue and uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty painful experience for most patients. So we're realistic with them about that. We give them better expectations so that when they wake up and they do have pain, they, they're like, oh, this is to be expected, right? Like I was informed about this. This is not unusual. And they don't, they don't you know, fixate on it in a way that's really going to hinder them. And so um, other things we do is we are trying to enlist uh, family members. So we, we try to get the patient's family involved much sooner with the prehab approach so that they are, if they have caregivers or spouses or significant others, uh, those persons are aware of some of the basics of what the patient will experience uh, with the surgery and postoperatively. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a general summary of, of what we're trying to do here. Okay, I appreciate it. I appreciate you kind of breaking it down for me. Mm -hmm. Okay, Dr. Eubanks, thank you so much for the excellent presentation. Yep. Uh, thank you for educating us. And uh, I think that's going to wrap it up for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in. Stay tuned for our next lecture. You can always um, see our schedule on our website, pmnrscholars.org or join our mailing list. Thank you so much and have a safe night. Thank you again to Dr. Eubanks for joining us. For more information on our virtual didactic sessions, as well as PMNR Scholars, head to pmrscholars.org or check out our social media pages on Instagram and Twitter.